is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. I just love James. I call him James the Blunt. Of course, you know that I've said it a long time. Um, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, give you a little background on this man. James, James is one of the reasons we know that Mary and Joseph had sex, because James is one of Jesus' brothers, okay? You don't make brothers by looking under cabbage leaves, okay? So James was one of the physical, literal brothers of Jesus. And yet, he worshipped him and served him and called him Lord. So, James wrote a very short book. It's very to the point. He does not pull any punches. He is very direct and yet, at the same time, his book is very deeply spiritual. And, and in moments, very practical. But, but underneath the practicums, it's a very, very deeply, profoundly spiritual work. Does everybody have a copy of the study notes? Everybody have a copy? Anybody need a copy? Raise your hand. God, I'm coming to you. I would encourage you to, to make a little file of these. I'm going to miss a couple of Wednesday nights over the next few months, and Pastor Josh is going to continue this study. Um, want, to, want to clarify one of the elements of Bible study. Whenever you go to a Bible study and the teacher begins to tell you we're going to do a word-by-word study of this, of this book of the Bible, you know immediately that they do not understand the Greek language. Because Greek does not translate word for word Greek to English. There are words in Greek for which there is no commensurate single word in English. So what you do if you're a student of linguistics is you do what's called a dynamic translation. You, you deal with phrases that, that in, their, in their context and their derivated meaning in the text can be adequately translated from Greek to English. Okay, So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing phrases not word for word, but verse by verse, phrase by phrase. So let's dig into this and drill down into it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So James, the brother of Jesus, calls himself a servant of God. Isn't that something else? And of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, his own brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Something had to happen in James's life. Because you know, sibling rivalry. A great testimonial for the fact that Jesus was the Messiah is the fact that his brother called him the Lord Jesus Christ and worshipped him as, as the Messiah. That's huge. Now, he wrote this to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that James wrote this letter. James did not sit down and say, okay, I want to write an epistle in the Bible. He had no idea that it was ever going to be a Bible. He wrote a letter, and he wrote a, he wrote. 12 copies, he probably hand-copied this letter 12 times and kept the original for himself. And he sent these to the 12 tribes. What does that mean? That means he sent them to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. At the time, they were scattered among different nations. They were scattered among uh, different uh, peoples in Rome and wherever else there may have been nations in, antiqu in, in antiquity. The Jewish people were scattered among those. So he sent these letters to the Jews. So this book is written to the Jews shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? 
Uh, he says, greetings. And in verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, I want to just stop there, and I want to encourage you not to just keep reading. If you want to read the book and kind of prep yourself for a study, do it at home. But I want to back up in this, in this one verse, and I want to deal with the first four words, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. If you look at your notes, the first point I want to bring out to us tonight is at issue here is our perspective. That's what this phrase, consider it pure joy, is really dealing with, our perspective. How we see life, how we interpret life, how we process life. This, this dynamic of, of considering our own perspective, how we interpret life, how we walk through it, how we process it. It powerfully shapes us, it impacts us, and it, it shapes who we become, and it also impacts everybody around us. How, how do we view life? How do we process through the experiences of our existence, of our sojourn here in this world? You know, I, I'm convinced that most people in this world don't even ever stop to consider their own attitudinal outlook. Uh, in, in space travel, if you don't know, in space travel, the attitude of a spaceship has to do with pitch and yaw. And if the, if the spacecraft is tilted thus on its axis and moving forward, you would say the ship has an attitude of, and then you would give the pitch and the yaw and the axis and the rotation and all that. It, it has to do with physically the positioning of the craft relative to its direction of travel, attitude. I'm going to tell you, our attitude is going to determine our position relative to our direction of travel and our destination. Uh, one of the least favorite things to me personally about ministry and, and being in church life, one of my least favorite things about church life is that preachers are all hung up on little cute quotable sayings. It just drives me crazy. I'm so sick of hearing little cute quotable sayings like, nobody, knows how, nobody cares how much you know till they know how much you care. Oh, you know, I've just heard all that stuff, and I don't care how true it is. I'm just sick of it. It's time for us to come up with a fresh way of communicating, perhaps without doing tweetable sayings. How about that for a change? So one of them that I'm sick of hearing is, our attitude determines our altitude. Oh, please, Christians around the world, let's get past that. I mean, even if it's true, let's find a new way to communicate it. You understand what I'm saying? So having said all of that and aired my personal rant to you, it's still true. Your attitude does, in a great sense, determine how you go through this life. And our attitude is determined by how we consider it. Consider it pure joy. Consider it. At issue here is our perspective. How we see, interpret, and process life impacts us powerfully, shaping who we become and impacting everyone around us. This is a, this is a vicious cycle. Because we see life a certain way, we begin to process life a certain way, we begin to go through life with an outlook, with a set of expectations, with a predominant personality projection, and as we do that, life then comes back to us, and we, we mostly get what we fish for and hit what we aim at, and if the only tool you have is a hammer, you do tend to treat everything like a nail. So let's just say somebody develops a, an, an anger issue 
or a negativity issue or a fear issue or an inferiority complex or whatever it might be. So you begin to go through life. Let's pick the inferiority complex. You begin to go through life with this feeling that you're just not as good as everybody else. You just never quite measure up. You're not as smart. You're not as pretty. You're not as handsome. You're not as strong. You're not as gifted. You're not as talented. You don't have as much money. And you compare yourself to everybody else. And you compare what you've done to everybody else's successes. And over time, you get to feeling like you're just, you're just less than most of the people that you know. And then you, you see, uh, so you begin to notice. We, ha, ha, have you noticed that if you buy a car, like you bought a Honda Civic. You never noticed Honda Civics going down the road before. But as soon as you buy one, everywhere you look, everybody seems to be driving a Honda Civic. Isn't it true? The women that buy a new dress for Easter, you, no, nobody's ever seen this dress you bought until you come to church. Go to the mall. There's my dress. There's my dress. Who wore it better, you know? Well, when we, when we begin to feel inferior about, about ourselves, then we begin to see things through those lenses. And we begin to see things that reinforce that inferiority. We begin to see, uh-huh, see there, see there. Look, look how pretty the, she is. I, I'll never be that pretty. Look, look, look at that guy. Look at the woman on his arm. I'll never have a woman like that. Look, look at that car he's driving. I, I'll never have a car like that. And we begin to go through life comparing ourselves to other people and as we process with the lens of inferiority, all that we see comes back to us and we begin what's called a cyclical declination. We, we begin to cyclically or cyclically decline because that inferiority complex feeds on itself. Now, the great danger, and this is what a lot of people don't understand about inferiority complexes. Inferior, inferiority complexes many times manifest as arrogance. And the reason is people are trying to convince themselves and overcompensate for their own, in, their own feelings of inadequacy. Um, let me just tell you what the Bible says about you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says you're the temple, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It, uh, now, now, I'm going to say this to you, and I know you're going to hear it, but you're never going to understand it until you live it. You will never be free until you get free of other people's opinions. And you'll spend about the first 30 to 40 years of your life thinking you're free. And then when you get 50 or 60, you'll suddenly understand I hadn't been free at all. Now I, I really, really am coming to the place where I understand what that kind of freedom is. You just don't have to care what other people think. Okay? So... Considering it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds is a choice, period. Think about that. The next point, we are empowered with the ability to choose our perspective. If you don't get anything else I say tonight, I want you to get that sentence. We are empowered with the ability to choose our perspectives. This whole teaching on this first phrase, consider it pure joy, is is. James and, and, and the Holy Spirit through James. James didn't write this, by the way. The Holy Spirit wrote it through James. He just penned it as the Holy Spirit gave it to him. Holy Spirit's the author of the Bible, right? Okay. The Bible says, and one of my, you know, I say this, I refer to this verse all the time. I hate to wear you out with it. I know you get tired of hearing it. But if we could get to the power of it, 
Proverbs 23, 7 in King James, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. I can't tell you how true that is. I just can't tell you how true that is. I'm going to go all the way back to when I was seven, eight years old, tell you this story. If you haven't heard it, here goes. First year I played a little league ball, I walked into the youth center in King Street. A bunch of guys sitting around on these tables. There were some ping pong tables in there. Al and Hal and Charlie and, and uh, Andy and Russell and Russell, or two Russells. Anyway, I walked in, and I had an old bat that was rotten, looked like a fence post, and a glove three times too big for me. And we lived out in the country. We didn't have any money. We were poor. I walked into the youth center to play little league ball, and they laughed at me. I mean, I could, I could see them making fun and pointing and sniggling and giggling and making fun. And I just felt like a blithering idiot. And that impacted me for a long time. And so before I left, I was kind of hanging around waiting on my dad to come pick me up. And uh, one of the guys said, hey, you want to play some ping pong? And I said, sure, I'd never played ping pong before. So I, I picked up the paddle, and, of course, they beat me and laughed at me, and they they hit all these fancy shots. I didn't know what they were doing. I couldn't play. So I got devastated at ping pong, and I expected that, and I left, you know. I played baseball. And um, I don't want to – I don't. I want to be careful what I say and how I say it. But I do want to tell you that I, I started out in baseball horrible. I couldn't catch the ball. I couldn't hit the ball. I couldn't do anything. I just could not play baseball. I was athletic. I just couldn't play baseball. So my mom and dad got me out in the yard, and they played baseball with me. And then one of my friends named Will had a coach named Mr. William Britton. And Mr. William Britton, who died many, many years ago, he's one of those people I was standing at his bedside when he died. If you smoke, stop, because it is a horrific way to die. Because I stood there and watched William Britton die. Not something you want up here. Mr. William Britton took time with me, and he taught me how to play baseball. And then I had a guy named Chuck, and he taught me how to throw the baseball. Then I had a guy named Larry, he taught me how to hit the baseball. And um, before it was over, the uh, Philadelphia Phillies were wanting to recruit me to go play baseball professionally. I could throw a baseball 95 miles an hour when I was 15 years old. I, st- I pitched three no-hitters, and one of them I struck out every batter. Nobody even touched the baseball. 27 strikeouts, game over. Now, I'm not saying that to impress you. I'm saying it to tell you, don't let your first encounter with something scare you of it. Don't be intimidated by anything. Also, also, for one year for Christmas, my daddy said, what do you want for Christmas? And, I, and it was shortly after that. I think I was 10 years old. I said, Dad, I want a ping pong table. So he bought me a ping pong table. I got out in our carport. Nobody had garages back then. We had carports. And my ping pong table would fold up halfway, so I played myself. And then God sent us a pastor who was a ping pong wizard. And he taught me. It's like everything I needed, God sent somebody to teach me how to do it. This guy taught me how to play ping pong by beating me 47,000 times at ping pong. But I finally got to where I could beat him. Got to college down at Southeastern, and they had a ping pong table in the gym. And it was, uh, you, could, you could play as long as you didn't get beat. 
And you could, you could play as long as you beat your opponent. You could stay at your end of the table, and different people could come. You could play as long as you wanted. I, I started playing ping pong at 9 o'clock in the morning. I quit at 9 o'clock that night. I never gave up the table, 12 hours of ping pong. I beat everybody there. So I got my little ping pong stuff, and guess where I went that summer? Right back to the youth center in Kingstree. And I kid you not, there was Al and Hal and Charlie and Andy and Russell and Russell and I walked in. I said, hey, you guys want to play ping pong? I said, yeah. I flipped out my custom paddle, whipped out my ball, and I beat every one of them in there about 21 to 1, 21 to nothing, 21 to 2. And it was incredible. And yeah, I did it out of pure ego. And it felt so good. <laughs> I still think about it and grin in the middle of the night while I'm dreaming. The point is not for me to impress you with ping pong and baseball. Because that doesn't impress anybody. What is powerful about those stories is this. We are empowered with the ability to choose our perspective. I refused. I chose to refuse to allow those older boys to intimidate me or to make me feel inferior. Now, it took effort and it took work for me to do those two things, to, to get good at baseball, to win the home run trophy, to pitch the no-hitters and all that, and to come back and do the ping-pong stuff. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of effort. But it was, it was in me. I was driven to do it. Not to disprove them, but to prove to myself that I could do those things. We're empowered with the ability to choose our perspective. Listen, you do not have to be an angry person. You don't have to go through life saying, It's me Irish blood, I tell you. Well, my dad had a bad temper, granddaddy had a bad temper, great-granddaddy had a bad temper, and I got a bad temper. Stop! You can break that chain through the power of God. Having a bad temper doesn't make you more of a man or a woman. I know some ladies who are firecrackers too, you know. We get to choose what kind of personality we're going to have. You get to choose how you feel about life. You get to choose how you're going to process it. You get to choose the, the basic outlook on life that you've had. My mother is one of the most amazing people in the world. And my father and I were like this. He was my, he was my hero, my mentor and all that, my best friend. But I got to give kudos to my mom too. My mom has lost every person in her life that she ever loved. Except me and my other sister. Three of her siblings died in her arms. Her mother died in her arms. Her husband of 40 years, my father, made a bad mistake, and they divorced. It devastated my mom. She's still to this day not recovered from that. She never will. I, my dad's dead and gone. She still loves my dad. I don't care what she says. I know her. She loves him. She always will. She has, she has never had anything uh, of any amount of substance in her life. She's never had a, a chunk of money. Uh, she had a little house in New Mexico. She's never had a whole bunch of possessions. She's, she's lived alone for the past 25, 30 years of her life. And, and she's just, my mom grew up hungry. And I can prove it because one year my dad said, Vera, what do you want to do for your birthday? And she said, I want to go grocery shopping. So we went to three grocery stores and daddy spent like, $400 on groceries back in the 1970s. That was like $800, $900 in groceries. Now we filled up the house with groceries and my mom was wiping her tears away. She was saying, I just can't believe we can buy all this food. I, and she was like, I feel like Scarlett O'Hara and going with the wind. I'll never be hungry again. You know. So she grew up hungry and she was taking care of her siblings when she was barely out of diapers herself. After all of that, 
my mom loves God, you can look in her eyes and see a gentle, sweet spirit behind them. Now, don't get her mad. She, she's got her side. All of us do. But basically, my mother is a gentle, spirited, loving woman who loves God, loves people, and has never, she has chosen not to allow the hard knocks of her life to make her bitter. Life is either going to make us bitter or it's going to make us better. We get to choose. Now, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to stand over here, and I'm going to say this, because all that's on pause. About that, I want to parenthetically say this. It is much easier sometimes to deal with the stuff we're processing after we have walked through that season of our lives because our brains aren't frazzled so bad. We're not so physically exhausted. We're not sick or on drugs or hormonal or whatever it might be. We get past the thing. Then we have some time and opportunity to look back on it and realize the lessons we learned through it. I'm not saying we get to behave however we want in the middle of a storm. You better be manning the sails and taking care of the ropes or you're going to drown. But after the storm's over, you have a minute to look around and think about what you did. How many of you saw the movie with Tom Cruise, The Last Samurai? How many of you saw that? If you've never seen The Last Samurai, it's incredible. Uh, one of my top three favorite movies of all time. If you, if you watch the last 20 minutes of that movie... And, and don't have a lump in your throat. You don't have a soul. Anyway, at one point, he plays the part of a samurai. At one point, he, gets, he engages, I think, four or five other swordsmen in the street. And it's kind of funny thinking of Tom Cruise being a samurai, but he really does a good job in the movie. And these, he's lived with these samurai. They've taught him swordsmanship. And he gets into a sword fight with these samurai, and he kills all of them because uh, Katsumoto has taught him how to be an, and really... Ioji has taught him how to be a swordsman. So after he finishes the battle, they replay the whole scene. And you can tell it's Tom Cruise going through it in his mind, and his character is Lieutenant Algren. You can tell he's going through this, this battle in his mind in slow motion that's showing what he did, and he's reliving it. You ever, you ever seen a golfer after he hits a shot and it doesn't go where he wants? He'll take the golf club, and he'll, he'll especially the pros, and they'll sit it down, and, and they'll reenact the shot. They'll reenact the putt. Uh, some of the great golfers do this. Uh, Greg Norman was one of the greatest putters that ever played the game of golf. And if he missed a putt, if you ever noticed one thing about Greg Norman when he putted, he would, he would putt, and he would never move his head. No matter how long the putt was, he would not look up until he heard the ball hit the cup or he knew it had passed the cup. He would keep that position until the ball had either gone in or gone past the cup, only then would he look up. Amazing discipline. But if he missed a putt or hit a bad shot, he would, he would do it again to, to, to reinforce to himself what he did wrong. Sometimes that's what is necessary for us to do. Don't just go through tough times in your life and, and think, man, I'm glad that's over. And you don't have to stay in them and relive them, but go through them one more time so that you can understand what you did right and learn from what you did wrong. Is that good? Okay. Now, I want to talk about this one more minute. We're empowered with the ability to choose our perspective. This is telling. Either faith or fear, negative or positive, will dominate our lives. Now, I want to, I want to stop here and talk to you for a minute about church government because this has a direct interplay with what we're talking about. There are, there are specific directions 
in the Bible given by Jesus himself on how pastors and church leaders are supposed to deal with serious problems in the church. There's a process through which we have to go. I have not had to do this many times, thank God, as a pastor, but on the, on the few occasions that I have had to sit somebody down who was doing something in the church they ought not to be doing, primarily, almost every time, it's been gossip. Um, we, don't, we don't do gossip in this church. I will confront you over it, lovingly, but you can count on it as sure as God exists. Sooner or later, I'm going to come and say, we need to sit down and have a chat, you know. And I'll, I'll be loving but I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to have gossips running loose in our church. We're just not. We're just absolutely freaking not. Um, when you sit somebody down and you tell them something they're doing and you open the Bible and no matter how, no matter how much ooey gooey love and chewy you pour on it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of eye-opening for a, a spiritual authority to be sitting there saying, I love you, but you're misbehaving biblically in the church. That's kind of like, wow, you know, it rattles people's cages. Now listen, this is important. The Bible says the Lord disciplines those whom he what? Loves. When we are being disciplined by somebody in the church, a leader, or, or God himself. And look, you'd much rather have a church leader discipline you than God. You really would. Listen, I've had to sit board members down that were some of my best friends. I've had to sit them down off the board at times. How we respond to those disciplines in our life tells more about our maturity than anything else we go through. A maturing Christian will accept it gracefully. They'll go back in the church house and they'll lift their hands, they'll worship God. They won't sit on the back row and and cross their arms and act like they're disinterested. They won't get on social media and post all about their hurt feelings and devastated life. They will accept their discipline with maturity, with grace, and they will grow through the process. An immature person will get defensive and angry and hurtful, and on and on it goes. So we're empowered with the ability to choose our perspective, and this is telling. Faith or fear, negative or positive, is going to dominate our life. Basically, we're going to be one of those two. We're going to be faith-oriented, or we're going to be fear-oriented. We're going to be visionary and positive, or we're going to be negative. And that's the basic overall personality profile that's going to dominate our lives one way or the other. Third point, our perspective is not limited to the present. Whether we realize it or not, we interpret past, present, even the future through our emotional and spiritual condition at the time. And we are affected by their influence regardless of linear time. Your fear of your future can impact you just as much or more than a horrific thing that took place in your past. A wound in your past can cause you in the present to make a decision that was never God's will because you didn't base that decision on faith. You based it on fear of an old wound reoccurring. So our perspective is tied to time, to linear time, and we've got to be aware of that. What happened in our past, we, we need to learn how to process through that adroitly. Process through it with acumen and alacrity and a modicum of wisdom. Process through it. Don't, don't, don't camp out in the wounds and valleys of your past. Uh, don't pitch a tent in the, in, the, in the woeful places of disappointment. Walk through it. Get out of it. Learn what you can learn from it. Glean what you can glean from it. 
It doesn't mean you have to make the same mistake again. You know, I'm just going to cut to the chase. Pause. I'm going to chase a rabbit. Did you see him? He just hopped up. I'm amazed at the number of women I've known over 35 years of ministry that will marry one of these guys who does not know how to treat a lady. They get, they get hurt. They get beat down. They get wounded. They get all disappointed and ends up in a separation, divorce, ugly, nasty. And then sometime later, they end up with the same exact type profile person again. And then sooner or later, they end up with the same exact profile person again over and over and over. Man, listen, you're not going to catch a bass in a catfish pond. If you go to Wendy's, don't expect bones filet mignon from Buckhead to show up in the window. You're going to get a hamburger. You want a bones filet mignon? You've got to go to bones. Now, don't expect to pick up Mr. Wonderful at a nightclub at 3 in the morning. I'm just being honest with you. I'm just telling you straight up. And stop being infatuated by these bad boys. They literally usually are bad boys. That's not sexy. It's not hot. It's not cool. That looks real nice at first blush, but invariably these guys end up hurting the women that they're with. You don't have to, you don't have to keep repeating. It's not, your, your life doesn't have to be Groundhog Day, the movie, where that day replays over and over, you know. It does, you don't have to do that. You can break free. A lot of this has to do with our perspective, subconsciously. We're not even aware we feel this way. It goes back to talking about inferiority. Subconsciously, some people feel like, well, I don't deserve better than that. I don't deserve better than that. A lot of that goes back to, to daddy issues and, and first early childhood issues. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't know anything about anybody's love life here, so please don't think I'm targeting anybody. I'm just, this is just a shotgun, you know. Whatever happens, happens. You don't have to see yourself the way you always have seen yourself. You have the power to change your perspective about that person looking back at you out of the mirror. You can consider it Whatever you choose to consider it. Perspective is amazing. And aren't, aren't we so blessed to be able to have the freedom and the power to choose the perspective? You can just choose to see yourself the way God does. Instead of the way your whole life has engineered you to see yourself. And let me tell you, there are people in your life who are probably jealous of you and they don't want you to see yourself as anything but a can't-do second-class person. It's shooting straight with you. So be aware of time. Don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of the unknown. Be afraid of your level of preparation for it or lack thereof. Be concerned about that. Now, now I want to say this, and it's very important to hear. There is a massive difference between faith and presumption. Oh, I got to fix something. I got, I got owned last Wednesday night. And I told it to you, so I got to tell you, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I got owned. I told you a story that I found out was a satire, and I didn't know it. I read it on social media. The pastor in Zimbabwe who told his people I can walk on water, and he walked out in the river, and the crocodiles ate him. That's not true. That was on a satirical website to begin with. I researched that on three websites, and none of them said it was satirical. But I found out later that it was, and I always tell you, if I share something with you, that I find out is inaccurate, I will always come and say, my bad, I own it, I fix it. So there it is. I got owned by the satirical website. But at least it didn't do any doctrinal damage. So just a story. 
So it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference between these stories now. But anyway, because that's just like something somebody would do. Even though it's not a real story, it's a, great, it's a great illustration of the difference between faith and presumption. Faith is something we trust God to empower and enable us to do. And yet presumption is when we go beyond biblical faith and just presume to insist that God do something for us a certain way. God is, listen, God is not obligated to perform miracles for us. We never get to the place where God is a one-armed bandit. We pull the lever, we get the results we want. That is not the way. He's never going to abdicate or move away from being who he is, sovereign God. So be very careful about this idea that if we get our faith just right, whatever we say and name, we get to claim, and that's it. God answers in three ways. He always has, and he always will. I don't care who the preacher is. God says yes, God says no, and God says wait. And he is always going to answer those three ways. If anybody knew about faith, it was the Apostle Paul. He prayed three times, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. God said no to Paul three times. So God says yes, God says no, and God says wait. He told a bunch of people in the Bible to wait, and they had to wait. It's in the waiting process that we need to be careful, but that's another sermon. All right, our perspective is not limited to the present. We interpret past, present, even the future through our emotional and spiritual condition at the time. This is why it's so important to stay close to God and stay in the Word, because you can make, you can make decisions in a season of your life where you were, you were further from God than you should have been, and your emotions made the decision, and you can make a terrible decision that can then put you in a, in a bind, as it were, relationally or financially or in some other way, for years to come, when, is, when if you had been walking real close to God, you'd have felt His Spirit say, oh, hold on now, let's, let's pray about this. You see what I'm saying? It's critically important for us because God is not going to follow us around with a can of Roundup, spraying the seeds we've sown when they come up. The Bible says a man reaps what he, the decisions that we make now impact us later. So there can never be a season in our life when we allow ourselves to drift, hoping that if, well, if I blow it, God will come behind me and he'll fix it and make it right. God's under no obligation to do that. Sometimes God lets us learn lessons the hard way. All right, next point. Our carnal nature, nature is notoriously negative, angry, selfish, and easily offended. It is the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. All of us have that nature within us. All you have to do to prove it is go to the nearest child care nursery and just observe for two minutes, and you will see human nature on full regalia and display. Nobody cares about the little blue popcorn popper in the corner until Susie Mae gets it and starts running around the room and acting like it's the greatest thing since baby food. And she starts running around with them corn poppers. Pop, 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 pop. And all of a sudden, in two minutes, you've got all-out, full-scale, frontal assault war over the corn popper. When if Susie didn't touch it, it could have sat there till Christmas and none of the kids would have cared. And the same truth can be said of a wooden spoon or a cardboard box or a dead bug. They don't care what it is. Long as one of them decides this is great, all the rest of them suddenly mourn. We've got three dogs in our house. Samantha and Jeremy's dogs live with us now. And shortly they will be going on down the road. <laughs> but my little dog weighs 10 pounds. Their dogs are huge. 
My little dog weighs 10 pounds. He's the best dog I've ever had. I love my little Quinby. He loves me. When I go in a room and shut the door, he'll lay down at the door and wait for me to come out. I love my little, my little dog. Anyway, we got him little doggy bowls because he's little. We got them big dishpans because they're big. They don't want to eat out of their dog bowls. They want to eat Quimby's food and his water. It comes out of the same bag. It comes out of the same faucet. No, no, they think. It's much better when the little dog's bowl. He, he's, he, I know his master owns the house. It's something he's got we don't have. You can see selfishness on full display in my house with the dogs. Listen, this is important. This is very serious. William Shakespeare was a demonized pervert, okay? But he could turn a phrase, and he wrote a couple of things that are shockingly accurate. And one of them he wrote in in Othello's advice was these words, To thine own self be true. We do ourselves no advantage when we fail to recognize the truth of our carnal nature. It is very important that we recognize our flesh, our natural ungodly propensities to drift away from the principle, self-discipline, and righteousness that Jesus died and empowered us to live in. It is our nature to be selfish. It is our nature to be negative. It is our nature. I've never met one person who wasn't a Christian that just had this effervescent, bubbly, positive, visionary, faith-filled outlook on life. I've met a bunch of people that weren't Christians that were very negative and sourpussed, though. It's, it seems to be part and parcel of human nature that, that we are just negative, and we're not, we're not all that forgiving. We're not all that loving. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is in the Bible. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Love is not easily offended. Love does not seek its own way. Love is not selfish. I hate, to, I hate to tell all of us this, but we are just not the center of the universe. We're not. And the sooner we learn that, and the sooner we learn that God is more concerned, you know, we think, I think sometimes we think that God needs us, and I think we forget how much we need God. You know what I think? I think when you finally find the guru on top of the mountain that understands the mysteries of life and you climb the mountain and you come to the feet of the great guru who really understands the mysteries of life and you say, oh, great guru, please tell me the mysteries of life. You know what he's going to say? He's going to say, this is a test. This is only a test. This is a test of the Christian broadcast system. This test exists to determine how you will respond to the principles in God's word as applied to your life every day. This is only a test. Now leave your money and be gone. That's what he's going to say. Because I'm going to tell you, that's what this life is. This life is a test. It is a proving ground to determine two things. What we're going to do with the Word of God and what we're going to do with the will of God. And that's it. Everything else is window dressing. This life is really about those two things. The Word of God and the will of God. And nothing else matters. So that's why I say we live by five words around here. What does the Bible say? The most most important five words in your life are those. What does the Bible say? Not what did John Hagee say or Joyce Meyer or pick your poison or me or any other preacher. What does the Bible say? Because any preacher, including me, can be wrong, but the Word of God's never going to be wrong. So the five words we live by are not how do I feel about this, and that's six words, but how do I feel today? Or what am I feeling now? But what does the Bible say? We don't live by what we feel. We live by what we know. 
And what we know ought to be those five words, what does the Bible say? I've been saying that for 35 years. I hope you got it. So 1 Corinthians 13, why don't we turn there and let's read the definition of love. I do not have that marked uh, in my Bible because I'm using one of these terribly slow iPads. Everybody talks about how fast a computer and an iPad are. I can scall this thing with a paper Bible every time. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking or selfish. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Just a word about the truth. I think perhaps there is no greater injustice that a spouse could do to their spouse than to allow them to live believing something that is not true or not knowing the truth about circumstances in their lives. Be honest and truthful with your spouse. If you want to be like Jesus Christ, don't keep secrets. Next, the result of the carnal nature dominating is a negative, edgy outlook that foments misery. That negativity in our lives creates misery. And the expectation of unpleasant outcomes. Murphy's Law, if anything bad can happen, it will. Negative people believe in Murphy's Law. Negative people expect the worst. Negative people believe that if, they're gonna, if they want to make it rain, all they got to do is plan a camping trip. Negative people believe that if... <laughs> that's right. Negative people believe that. All they've got to do to make a tornado come to the new SunTrust Stadium is to buy tickets for a game. Surely an F5 will touch down while they're there. Negative people believe these things. As a man thinks, so he is. We expect stuff. We, it, it happens to us, and we, then we act amazed, and it reinforces the negativity. It's, it's, it, fo- it foments and recycles misery in our lives, the expectation of unpleasant outcomes, and creates an unpleasant aura about us. Nobody wants to hang around a vexed, miserable, negative person. Somebody posted a picture of the the wicked witch riding the bicycle before she was the wicked witch in the wizard of oz and they they said does anybody know what movie this came from and those of us who've seen it we all know exactly that's from the wizard of oz the wicked witch nobody wants to hang around somebody and can i give you a tip you know what the definition of a boring person is i mean this go look up up in the dictionary it is someone who talks about themselves all the time you know why Johnny Carson was such a success back in the day? Is he's, there's never been a more successful late-night talk show host than Johnny Carson. All these other guys are amateurs. Johnny Carson was the king. You know why? He knew a secret, and the secret he knew is that people like to talk about themselves. So he asked his guest, tell me what's going on with you, and he'd just let him talk. How do you feel about so-and-so? He'd let him talk. Why do you think this is so? He'd let him talk. It's amazing. He understood people love to talk about themselves. So, don't be a boring person and just talk about yourself all the time. That's part of an unpleasant aura. The, we all have an aura. It's, it's kind of like a, 
a fragrance, not physically, but a, an emotional fragrance that we put off, a vibe, if you will, that we put off. We get to control that. But people can pick up on when you're, when you're a, a, a tuning fork that's out of sync. You, did you know when you're trying to uh, tune a piano or a guitar and you hit a tuning fork and you pluck the string, if they're exactly on the same frequency, you can't tell any difference. But if you hear this, warbling, it, that means that one of them is slightly out of har- harmony with the other one. And it'll sound almost right, but there's a warble in it. Some people put off a weird warble. And they're trying to be in tune, but somewhere your receptors are picking up. A lot of, that, a lot of times we're trying to put up a good front, but inside us something is not right. I'm going to tell you, you can let an old wound steer you around all your life. And you can even convince yourself that you've gotten over it. But if you're bitter, if you're self-focused, you don't like people, you're snippy, you're negative, you just expect the worst out of human beings, you better be careful. That old wound may still be a backseat driver in your life. Next, it is our responsibility and to our benefit to reprogram our inner nature from its natural carnal mode to a biblically principled faith-oriented modus operandi. In other words, we get to choose that we're going to change. I'm not going to be a negative smart aleck. I'm going to change. I'm not going to be the guy with anger issues. I'm going to change. And we'll let people around us, you know, put us in those boxes. You hear people whisper, boy, you know, he's a great guy. Just don't make him mad, you know. And we begin to think, yeah, that's my mission to fulfill that. I'm nice. Just don't make me angry, you know. We can stop that. We can become mature, sensible, pleasant people who exude the fruit of the Spirit. You know what your attitude should be? Read Galatians 5.22. That's what our attitude should be. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what our attitude ought to be speak to people around us. So we get to reprogram our inner nature. So how do we do that? The next point says we accomplish this by, number one, intentionally limiting negative input. Now I want to say this to you. I say it sometimes from time to time. And I'm not 100% sure how many people really get this. I want you to hear this. It only takes one person to empower our weakness. It only takes one person to keep you worked up about some offense. It only takes one person to keep you addicted to something that you don't need to be addicted to. It only takes one person to, to draw you out of your marriage. It only takes one person to empower your weakness. And the devil knows that. It doesn't take a crowd, it doesn't take a village. It takes one person to keep feeding the fires of your weakness. So intentionally limit negative input. If, if you've got a problem with drugs, don't go hang around Peachtree Avenue downtown. If you've got a problem with pornography, then you put a guard up on what you watch and give, every, give somebody that you trust and love all your passwords and don't erase your browser history and let them go and check on you. Build some accountability into your life. You, you have control. You can, you can put some boundary markers and some accountability and some gatekeeps in place that will help you. You don't have to just drift through life. Take charge of who you're becoming. Take charge of your own personal development. Intentionally grow yourself into the person you'd like to become. You can do this. I said, you can do this. 
intentionally, purposefully engender within yourself and grow and develop the kind of a personality that you'd like to have. You're not born with a locked-in personality. You can change it. I used to be the meanest, angriest, most deadpan, soulless, sociopathic psycho in the whole world. I did. I could have killed... I'm not even going to say that. I was a bad person at one point in my life after not too, not too many years of being here on this earth. I got, I got fouled up quick. But I decided I'm not going to live my life this miserable. I'm just not going to do it. Had nothing to do with my family. I had a great home life. Had to do with one person. One person empowered a weakness in my life and nearly destroyed me. One person. When I was very young. So we got to watch who we are, take charge of our own growth, take control of our own development, and make sure <clears throat> that we're feeding what we want to grow and starving what we want to die. So intentionally limit negative input. Secondly, increase the input of biblical principles into your life. It's great to know that David killed Goliath. Yay, yay, yay. The little guy can beat up the big guy. That's a wonderful thing to know. But that's not the real story of David killing Goliath. That's one spoke on the wheel. There is a whole meat tray of truth in the story of David versus Goliath and David's young life. It's not the facts and the history that we want to learn and the, the exciting part of the stories that we want to read the Bible for. What's, what's, what's this teaching me? What principle is this teaching me? What's the deeper truth here that applies to my life today? In the story of David and Goliath, some of the truths are these. David was destined to be king. But all these forces in the world tried to intercept that destiny for, from him. Satan knows what your destiny is, and he will try to send along counterfeits to intercept and derail your destiny. But stay true to God. David was faithful in the little things before he became successful in the big things. When his father sent him to take care of the sheep, he fought off wolves and lions and bears to protect the sheep. That's why he got so good with that sling. David developed his courage in the backside of the wilderness fighting wild animals to protect his father's sheep. He was faithful keeping the sheep. He wouldn't even come to the house to see the prophet anoint the next king. He was still with the sheep. He was faithful. David was not one of these people that looked like the next king of Israel. He was young. He was he was muscular and handsome and ruddy and dark-complected. And the Bible says that God looks, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When David went to the battle to fight Goliath, he took a bunch of cheese and some bread with him. And before he just left him and ran to the battle lines and found out about this giant, a younger, immature person would have gotten all excited. There's a giant. He's intimidating the whole army. I've got to see this. Nope. Before he did any of that, he took the supplies his father had sent him with and he left them with the keeper of supplies the guy who dispensed the different things to the different families david was responsible he was faithful he was fearless and when he got in front of goliath right at the very last moment king saul said you're going to go face the giant he, you can't do it you're just a boy he's a man david said i'm not afraid saul said well if you want to die go die but here at least take my armor out there david tried it on walked around he said, nope, can't do this. I'm not used to it. You can't operate in somebody else's anointing. And that's powerful principles. David took what he was used to. He took his stick 
And he went and gathered five smooth stones and took his sling. And when he faced the giant, he did the same thing he did when he faced the lion and the bear. And he said, I'm not afraid of you. The Lord that I serve is going to deliver you into my hand. And he told the giant, today I'm going to cut off your head. He wasn't even wearing a sword or a knife. Think about that. Wow. So there's a lot of meat on the story of David and Goliath that goes way deeper than just little guys can beat up big guys. So dig into the principles and increase the input of biblical principles. Learn what God is teaching us. Thirdly, intensify your worship and prayer life. Let me give you a quick recipe for changing your life in short order. Take a day or two off work. Maybe it's your weekend. Next time you get a whole day or two off work, arrange your personal affairs, your cat, your dog, your fish, whatever, your kids, and go someplace. Just get away. Hotel, ladies, hotels are great. They're safe most of the time. Pick a good one. You know, Burt's Beanery and hotel in the back might not be first choice. Pick a nice hotel. Go to the hotel and spend all day and all night and all day the next day doing nothing but these things. No TV, no cell phone, turn it off. Or do all the uh, do not disturb except the person watching your goldfish or whoever. Carry you some food so you don't have to leave the room. Carry you, well, you, can, you can use your phone. I started to say carry you a radio or tape player or a CD player, and now everybody just uses their phone. Get you a playlist or two or three of worship music. And don't do anything but read the Bible, worship God, and pray and take notes the whole weekend. Don't do anything but that. Make yourself stay in that room. Guys, go get you a tent and camp out. Do whatever you want to do. Go somewhere. Don't take anybody with you. I call this spiritual shock therapy. One weekend can change your life. You just read the Word. You pray. You worship God. Put Hillsong on there and just sing with them in the room. Nobody cares if you can sing or not. Make a joyful noise, you know. Just sing. And then when you feel like you've got something, write it down. Or you can, if you take notes, it's, it's very unromantic to me to write down poetic things in an electronic device. But, I mean, I like paper and pen. But if you want to type it in your iPad or phone or whatever, more power to you. But take some notes on things that God teaches you. Increase the input in your life of worship, praise, and prayer. And it will impact you. Now, before we go tonight, let's take some uh, 